Well, we live in a fairly crazy and tumultuous world. Uh, at least that's my perspective of all the things going on. It is everything from just our cultural issues that we're dealing with, and then we're dealing with all the political elements that we face, and we need to learn as Christians how to speak into all of those. Uh, we don't necessarily need to create issues. There are plenty of them out there. We have to learn to try to speak biblically into them. I was uh, reminded this week, um, just because politics is one of those things, we don't really speak too much about it, and I want to stay centered on the gospel and what that looks like, but if for some of you, I know that uh, the whole issue of all the politics that are going on is kind of a crazy thing, and I, I just want to remind you that as good citizens, we need to let our voice be heard in the channels that are given to us. So there's, I know that I was reminded there's things like caucus meetings coming up even this next week, and uh, if you want your voice heard, these are great ways that you can have it. So whether it's in formal structures like the political system or it's talking with your neighbor, we have to respond to people with the grace and the mercy that God has given to us to uh, speak into kind of the struggle. Um, I'll tell you, I heard a story this week, and I won't be too particular about it in terms of what it is, but I heard in the, one of the school systems this week that one of the pressures of life happened to be so great on one particular family that I heard of an eight-year-old committing suicide. So we live in really difficult times. And so some of the things that we often preach about seem kind of minor at times, and yet these things kind of press in on our world. I was actually thinking of something that I was reminded of this week. It's kind of a historical landmark, but January 28, 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger took off from Cape Canaveral, Florida. Uh, some of you are going to be way too young to remember this, but this was the first time an ordinary uh, civilian uh, was taken on the space shuttle, and her name happened to be Christy McAuliffe. She was a school teacher. She was going to be one of the first school teachers or civilians in space, and as that uh, shuttle took off, it was uh, about 70 seconds later that it exploded into fragments, and everybody on board was killed. Uh, so it... it, it reminds me of the fact that as we live life, it's like always exploring new territory, and it can be a magnificent exploration of something we've never seen, or it can blow up in our face and we feel like the whole world's coming apart. Uh, it's kind of the times that we live in, and it's really hard to navigate where, uh, where we want to be. For some people, it results in fear, that I'm not going to take any risks at all because I don't want me to blow up, I don't want anything else to be destroyed, and others are just pressing the envelope on everything. And we're dealing with this in our culture, we're dealing with it in our churches. One of the, the newest language stuff going around is deconstructing our faith, deconstructing our religion, and it's a process where individuals are just basically ripping apart everything that exists, everything from patriarchy to we're dealing with, uh, one of the issues that's connected to these things is role of men and women in the church, and you know that if face masks and those kinds of things can tear about churches, certainly these can too. And so as we move through this study, we're going to jump into the New Testament, and I'm going to touch a small sliver of it this morning. Uh, if I was to deal with this whole issue, uh, it would be longer than Romans. And so uh, I, I know you don't want that as much as you want to know about the issues, 
but we are t touching base on some critical issues this morning, and I wanna give you some framework stuff this morning to think through this and how we approach it. Uh, we're gonna be in Galatians 3, 28, and we're gonna be in Colossians 3, 11. Two of the sort of the fundamental passages that is talked about in terms of equality in the church, obviously between men and women and what it looks like. So let me begin by just reading the two texts, uh, just as they are, and then we'll step into it. I want to talk to you, first of all, about the idea of how we take Scripture uh, and identify principles so that things that were written to a different people in a different culture are relevant to us. And then we'll talk a little bit about the text themselves and how, uh, I'll be honest, how I think about how we process this, and I'll explain it in a minute. Galatians 3, 27-28, For as many as you, uh, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And so this is the cornerstone text that we use uh, regardless of what side of the fence you're on uh, in relationship to this idea of equality. The only other place that has this kind of verbiage in exactly the same way is Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. So if you want to be nimble and jump back and forth, we'll start in Galatians and get there. But the statement there in Colossians 3 is this. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So before I jump into the specific text, let me talk a little bit about principles. I've been doing ministry for 30, well, long time. Um, he's gonna say, you just tell us you're really old and you know, that'll suffice. But one of the, I think one of the most trickiest things that we deal with is not only what does the text say, but how do we understand its significance for where we live? And there's all kinds of principles and guidelines that are used to try to keep us as objective to that reality as possible. Uh, the one in particular I'm gonna talk about is the idea of principles. Uh, principles are what we often call as timeless truths that are discovered from the biblical text that transcend the specific culture it was written in and the people it was written to, so we understand the meaning and implication of the truth for our lives where we live. Obviously, we're dealing with a culture that's thousands of years removed from us. Now, there's still certain elements of that. If you get on an airplane, you can go see elements of those cultures, but it all changes over time. Uh, the cities that you see in Israel were probably not the cities that you see 2,000 years ago. The buildings are different, the structures are different, but often the culture is very similar, and a culture is shaped by language, and it's shaped by core values. And so when we interpret the scriptures, understanding what they meant in that culture is really significant. Now you know this in our own language. If someone came to me and said, hey, that's really dope, I might ask, what drug are they on? <laughs> but someone would say, well, that's stupid, Brad. That means it's really cool or something. It doesn't mean that somebody's on drugs. So we have this in our own culture and trying to communicate with one another in, in just understanding language and how pe what people value. So this is tricky at best and sometimes dangerous and I wanna try to illustrate that for you. We have things like linguistic context. It's the words and the language that's used. There's cultural context and then there's of course what I think is critically important, the scriptural context. Um, the, the challenge of this is that there's always ambiguity built in to our understanding. 
We didn't grow up in these cultures. We don't know this language. It's not innate to us. So we, there's always a, a level of ambiguity that we're dealing with, and that's what makes this t- difficult. Uh, context, of course, I've mentioned. That is really significant. Um, and then there's the idea of genre, the, the way people write. And we saw that in Genesis as we touched base there. Uh, we know that every language has different styles of writing. Everything from what we would call metaphors to hyperbole to you got street language. I mean, it's just, it, there's all different kinds of forms of ways that we communicate things. And so understanding it from a completely different culture and time is sometimes very t- tricky. Having said that, let me just uh, think about this particular check, uh, text in Galatians 3 for a minute. Let me illustrate why it's tricky. Uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, neither, uh, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, if I was going to deal with a principle from this particular text, it, th- the simplest way to look at it is, in our standing before God, there's, we're all equal. And I think we could get most people to look at that text and, and agree with that. It's a simple, important starting point in the process. But you can have the same principle and come out in very different places. So let me illustrate it, not that I'm trying to make a comment on it, but for instance, if you take an egalitarian view, the, the statement about equality says that you should, it should impact the doctrine and the function of the church. If everyone is equal, then everyone should have the right to any role or responsibility in the church, including being pastors and elders. So they veil that through a particular issue that they're dealing with, and that's the conclusion they come up with. Um, however, if I take another group of people, for instance, our LGBTQ plus community friends, they might come up with a very different conclusion in terms of what's important to them. So they would say, well, if there's no male or female, everyone is to be accepted for their own identity. They ought to be, there ought not to be any discrimination or prejudice towards anyone, regardless of their sexual orientation, uh, because the basis of this this text clearly says there's no longer any distinction or discrimination between genders or sexual orientation. So you got people that could look at exactly the same text, look at the very same principle and come up with very different conclusions. Now I know some of you, even mentioning that, are already rummaging through your mind about, wait a minute, there's other things that we have to consider before we come up with these particular conclusions. And I would say, yes. You tra- I had, had 35 years of ministry and that's the most profound thing I can say this morning, is yes. Now, so you can see the difficulty in terms of how we deal with this. So let me start with uh, some of the principles. I'm gonna tell you one of my biggest frustrations in terms of all the ministry I've done is how people take principles out of a text and how they're used. Um, we'll get around to that in a minute, but. Let's start with Galatians 3.28. There are two principles that I have no problem with. Uh, If you look at the text and and look at it carefully, there's a couple of things that it says. First of all, I've mentioned the one, all who place their faith in Christ and are justified are accepted and equal with God. There are no distinction, prejudices, or favoritisms with God towards his people. So it doesn't matter whether you're a person of great faith and think you're a great evangelist and do all kinds of great things, that doesn't make you any better than the person who teaches a Bible study or preaches from the pulpit. Uh, We tend to do that. Uh, Let me borrow another principle from 1 Samuel where God says, man tends to look at outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Uh, 
Now, we tend to measure from outward appearances. We love to put up our resume, and here's all the things I've accomplished and done. And when you're applying for jobs, that's necessary because it's the nature of our culture. But what, what we really need to embrace is that when every person puts faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we are equal with God and we stay equal with God. He might give us different assignments and giftedness in terms of how we function in the Lord, but that doesn't make you any more special than me and me any more special than you. We're operating according to what God's grace does in working in us. So that one, I think, is pretty safe. But the second one is this, all who are fully accepted by God are part of a new humanity in Christ and a new community called the church. Our equality is grounded in the fact that we're all children of God. So one of the reasons Paul makes this statement that there's no distinction between people is that we don't measure their value or significance based on whether they're male or female or whether they grew up in a Christian home or they didn't, whether they uh, came from Canada or the United States or whether they're from any other country. Although there's something intuitive in us that tend to pass judgments on people based on skin color and other things because of the world we live in. And so when God says when people come together and they've placed faith in Christ, we're all on the same standing with God. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't establish prejudices. God isn't like us, fortunately. And so these are two critical ones that I think are, are, are realistic. Now, if I borrow the egalitarian argument for a minute, there's a third one here that, that I just want to mention so that you have it in your wheelhouse because it'll help us think through this as we move forward. The third one is this. There should be equality in all roles and responsibilities in the church. Roles should be determined by gifting, not gender, because of the statement that there's no such thing as male or female. And while that, in a sense, sounds good, then the question is, what does that look like? And so uh, I want to just take a moment to read a couple of things, and I'll just show you how confusing this can get. So Gordon Fee, in his book on biblical equality, makes some statements. I won't deal with all of it, and I know this part can be a bit tedious because I'm reading other people's statements, but I think it's important to hear some of the thought processes that go into it, and I'm gonna react a little bit to this more with questions and, and things, but they basically say this. Paul, and a lot of it is related to structures and things, so it's gonna, like leadership positions, structures, roles, they're gonna deal with headship and submission in marriage, and the basic idea is these are obsolete things that are born out of a fallen world and a culture, not something for the church, but, so anyway. Paul's con uh, concerns regarding structures may appear ambiguous. Well, that's because they are a little bit, but anyway. But that is precisely because of their ultimate irrelevance. Cultural structure simply exists as the way sociological groups maintain their identity and, and live within their comfort zones. If you don't understand what that means, I'll get to it as we read further. In Paul's view, one can serve Christ well within such limits. So if you're living in the world and you've got broken systems, Christians can still live out their faith. So that's what he's saying. What he disallows is giving significance to structures and roles as such, which starts leading me to think, well, okay, the natural conclusion to me is don't have any leadership roles at all. And it's based on some things he says before. But here's how he explains it. Because when one does this, the Jew will demand that the Gentile be circumcised, the husband will want his wife to be his servant, and Philemon can take Onesimus back only as a slave, not as a brother. It seems, arguably, 
therefore, that even though our text does not explicitly mention roles and structures, so they're willing to admit that, it's new creation theology, being one in Christ, uh, calls these into question in the most profound way. And so then he goes on and explains a little bit. Now, obviously, it's never fair to quote part of what someone says without reading the whole chapter. But anyway, that's, so the questions that come up in my mind is that there's always a danger we throw the baby with the bathwater. Because what it begins to start sounding like is, well, if you have structures at all, you know they're going to be corrupted because the husband's always going to demand his wife to be a servant, so we've got to get rid of the whole thing. I'm going to push back on that, and not this week, but you'll see it a little bit, is that yes, you can have structures and systems that have systemic problems. Those need to be corrected. We're dealing with that in our culture. However, the bigger issue is people are messed up, not always the structure. And so if you have a husband who goes around thinking his wife is a servant, the problem is with the mindset of the husband, not necessarily the problem of of the structure. And some of you, I've done enough premarital counseling with some of you that we're not going to do it this week, but we're going to talk about headship and submission, which from an egalitarian perspective, gets pushed aside as saying he's just accommodating the culture, and so they're going to eventually disappear, so why bother with them? That's why he's ambiguous. I'm not particularly and totally comfortable with that, but we'll talk about it as we move through it. So what we get here in this process is that we have these particular principles. Now, what I want you to do this morning is think with me about the context of these particular statements in Galatians and Colossians, and I want to tell you how I think through, because one of the most frustrating things i found in my ministry is that it's people can find principles from Scripture, and then they run around and swing it around like a dead cat to hit every idea, concept, doctrine, and issue that they can think of. And I'm not convinced that that's the proper way to handle a principle. Now, So I'm going to show you the starting point that I have in terms of how we think through this as a starting point, not as a final answer or there isn't other considerations, but I want you to think, I want to explain to you how I would address this particular issue. Galatians 3.28, I want you to look at the context. Uh, There's a list of things that I've put in here that sort of gives you a feel for the flow of the subject matter of what he talks about in Galatians 3. Starts in 3.5, he talks about the works of the law versus hearing with faith. So you'll get a general feel here that he's talking about salvation. In, a, in our words, the gospel, how to be right with God. He makes it clear that the, the, he talks about the gospel to the Gentiles, along with the Jews, but the gospel to the Gentiles. He talks about no one is justified before God by the law, and he talks about that in 3.11. He talks about uh, the Gentiles getting an inheritance by promise, not by law. He goes on and even talks about the promises by faith in Jesus Christ in 3.22. He makes a statement of that we are all sons of God through faith in Christ. You have put on Christ and been baptized into Christ. Now that's language that's all what I, we would call in theological terms soteriological. It's about our salvation. How God declares us right when we stand before him. He doesn't destroy or kill us, but because he gives us the righteousness of Christ, he accepts us but it's because of simple faith in Jesus, not by works or performance. Does that make sense? So, 
even after the statement in 328, it talks about we are all children of God through the Spirit in chapter four, verse six. We are now known by God. He actually says, we have come to know God, and then flips it around and says, actually, God has come to know us. It's a really interesting statement. We won't get into it. But then he says uh, in 419, I'm in anguish until Christ is formed in you. So if there's any leakage on this from our sheer standing before God, he's concerned about Christ being formed in them. It would be the only other element of it. Now, the reason that that's important is, well, let me go to Colossians 3 and explain that one, and then we'll come back and explain what I believe the difference is or what's important. If you go to Colossians 3, I want to start back in chapter 2, verse 20, because he uses similar kind of language. In in 2.20, he says, if you have died to the elementary principles of this world, which has salvation language to it, I'm not living according to the flesh or my propensity or the things of the culture or the morality of the world. If I've died to those things, don't live that way. In chapter three, verse one, he comes back and says, if you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above. So uh, then he says in 3.9, you have put on the new self. Literally, it says the new man. It's this new mode of existence of being in Christ. It's like when you take a kid from a really bad circumstances and a family adopts them into a much maybe more wealthier or different kind of environment, they live now in this environment. The child may have a hard time adjusting to that because they've been trained how to live in a bad environment, so they have a hard time changing their behavior, so they might still steal, they might lie, do things, but they have all the resources they need to live differently. And so that's an element of what he's saying. Then he drops in 3.11, this no distinctions, and then in 3.12 he says, put on as God's chosen ones, compassion, there's a whole list, we're gonna look at it later. Uh, 3.14, put on love. 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, what's the idea that we need to sort of grasp in this particular context? Well, let me make three observations and then we'll leak back into Colossians so that you can understand the sense of it. The first one is this. The context of these two passages, the scriptural context in 3.28 and Colossians 3.11, focuses on our equal standing with God and this equal standing we have with one another because we're part of this new community. Now that one to me is, is not difficult. I don't know anybody They may not understand all of it, but I don't know anyone that would disagree with it. The second one is the one where I tend to push back a little bit, but here's the second statement. Neither Galatians nor Colossians specifically address leadership roles, responsibilities, elders, deacons, spiritual gifting, or distinctions in the body. Now you might say, well, Brad, you can't talk about everything. But I think it's significant to note that Paul doesn't, in Colossians 3.28, follow it up with something like what he did in 1 Timothy 3. Now, you may not know what's there, but there, and we'll get there eventually because it's part of the discussion, he says, well, if any of you, if any of you aspires to the role of an elder, you, d- you desire to do a good work. He doesn't put that right after Galatians 3.28. If he did, I would be full on barred with saying, Okay, well then obviously in this no distinctions, he's tying it directly to things like leadership, and so that would open it up for everybody and anybody in terms of what they're doing. 
Well, again, somebody's gonna say, you can't talk about everything, and so how do we interpret that? Well, my conviction is, this, the, Peter tells us that nobody, none of the human authors write on their own initiative, that they're carried along by the Spirit of God, and I think he instructs them and impresses upon them the things to write because the Spirit of God wants us to understand things in a certain way, in a certain context, so that we understand what his desire is in this. Because I read commentary after commentary after commentary, and it's just flooded with what did the author write? What was the culture of that time? I have no problem with that. But I rarely read anything to say, well, okay, so now we know all the limitations of the author, and assuming that he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, what do you think the Holy Spirit had in mind by putting these things together in the way that he had them put it together? That's the concern that I have. Because the danger here is we start extracting principles and we make it apply to whatever we want it to. Uh, let, me, let me back up in my thinking, not in the slides, to give you a couple of examples. Uh, and this may, I hope this doesn't confuse you, but for instance, James 1.5 talks about if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God and he'll give it to you freely. But don't doubt or whatever. So we'll take a passage like that and say, oh well, God wants us to ask him for wisdom. And so we ask him for wisdom about what car to buy, what school to go to, should I marry this person, you know, should I beat this person up, or should, you know, what, what, what is, what, I need wisdom for whatever. But if you look carefully at the context, right before it, he talks about consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And to me, the best way to understand what wisdom means in this particular context is not about anything on the planet, but ask God for wisdom when you're going through various trials so you can allow that process to transform your faith and your heart. Because listen, you and I both know, I can read one verse, pull out a principle, and I can start whipping it around at anything. My favorite one is Matthew 18, uh, verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree about earth, uh, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them for their Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, then are they're in their midst. Now, not only is there an interpretive problem here, but there's an application problem. One is, I don't think it's talking about prayer at all, and it certainly is not a magic formula to get God to do something that one person can't do. But we use this all the time in prayer meetings and whatever, to say, well, as long as we can agree, we'll get God to do something that you by yourself can't get him to agree to. The other problem I have with that is that James chapter five says the prayer of a righteous person, one guy, is powerful and effective. So what, are they contradicting one another? Well, one is, when you don't look at the context, you come up with all kinds of ideas and principles that have nothing to do with the text, and we start flinging it around like it's a magic formula to do stuff. And, we, and this is the danger we have to be careful about in anything that we do. So, what does that mean in terms of what we're dealing with? Well. We have an equal standing with God, we have equal standing with one another, we are one in Christ, but neither of these texts specifically try to address leadership. They don't talk about roles in the church. It's, Galatians especially is very much about our standing with God and because there's no distinctions among us, it intuitively says there's this new relationship we have with one another. So how does that flow out in terms of the element, well, if I look at these two texts that are in the New Testament, that both have these no distinctions, 
The best one to understand how equality impacts the church, I believe, is Colossians chapter 3. And the reason for it is what he talks about immediately following his statement about no distinctions. Now, if you go to it, uh, I want you to look at Colossians 3.12. So the the verse 11 is the no distinctions between Scythians, barbarians, Jews, whatever. Then he immediately says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. So again, he immediately steps into how the community of faith ought to relate to one another. And again, I'm going to say, he's not talking about elders. He doesn't bring in a statement for First Timothy. He talks about elders and deacons. He's not doing that. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I think one of the guardians of misusing principles is that when you take a principle out of a text, I believe the context in which it was taken out of is first priority in how we apply it. Because if we don't do that, then to me there's no boundaries on where you can put, what you can do with it. There's no, and so Galatians doesn't talk about leadership, so I'm cautious about saying, well, this immediately has to change everything. When I get to Colossians chapter three, he starts talking about how it should affect this community. Now, notice what he goes on, I think it's worth noting. Verse 14 and 15, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs uh, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, As I look at the text, the first priority of equality says, hey, I have this total, I'm I'm just as equal and significant to God as anybody else on the planet, no matter how I'm intimidated by others or whatever, that's irrelevant in God's eyes. You're just as valuable, just as loved, just as precious to God. And Colossians comes back and says, that's the way we need to treat one another. And I think he does that because leadership doesn't mean anything if we can't live this out. See, to me, the most powerful expression of equality is that we have, that we live, we treat each other exactly the same way. That we have compassion for one another. Now, someone I know, every time I say that, they'll come up and say, yeah, but doesn't compassion gonna look different? Well, yeah, of course, because it hits the real world and compassion for your spouse might be different than from your coworker. But the point is, equality means that I need to live with compassion to every single person in this body and part of his church. Because if I fail to do that, then I'm saying, well, maybe I'm superior to this person, they don't need my compassion, they need me to judge them so that I can correct what they're doing. But look at the list of things that are there. Just, if Let the peace of Christ dwell in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then we have this sense of equality in the body that says we care and nurture for one another. And and so he, he, he 
measures this thing, and just so you see my thinking, although we can't solve it today, if you notice verse 18 in Colossians 4, what does he come back and say? Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, if equality was intended to eliminate all roles and structures related to authority and whatever in the church and at home, why would he include it in here? To me, the better part of practical wisdom would say, listen, if we're talking about equality, the first thing you ought to do is correct the things that are dysfunctional. See, the thing I disagree with Gordon Fee is that, well, his argument is, well, these are things in the culture. There's no way they can function without those things, and so I'm not, he's not going to deal with them because eventually they'll be done away with whatever. And literally, the word that's used is that he's accommodating them because they won't know how to function if he doesn't But I don't know, that just sounds like Okay, we're gonna allow some things from the world to start dictating how we live in here. That didn't sound good to me at all. If, you've, if you're creating a new community and we're trying to live out equality before God because we have it in Christ, why wouldn't you fix everything that needs to be fixed? Now, of course, to me, this is the start. This is, to me, the safeguard in understanding principles. Is it possible that a principle like that can be applied in other places? Yep, it can. But there's also this danger we start applying it to things that it's not intended to be applied to because frankly, if these qualities are being lived out, I bet you we'd never have an issue related to roles and responsibilities. Now, before you get to a conclusion when I talk about wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives, when we get to Ephesians 5 and come back to this passage talking about headship and submission, uh, I'll, I'll talk to you what I think, and most of you, uh, just to sort of bait the conversation, uh, the only people who will know differently are those who I've done premarital counseling with. I tend to look at headship and submission differently than a lot of people do. And so the idea is, do we have to throw out all the structures in order to fix it, or do we have to swap roles in order to balance it, or do we need to start living in a way that treats everyone as equal and we're part of a community that that allows Christ to motivate our lives, that we have compassion and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness, because those are the things that mark equality within the fabric of how we live in a culture where there's no equality. You can't reduce it just down to how leaders operate. That's why I think he deals with it this way. This is a clarion call to the entire body of Christ that if you want to be this glorious, reflective light of the gospel of Jesus, let's treat each other completely differently than what you're getting out there. It doesn't matter what the roles and responsibilities are, the structures, the authority. We'll, We'll deal with those. But this is where equality needs to have its most profound impact. So if you're a person that has a bitter animosity towards somebody else in the body, you're not living out this, you're basically saying we're not equal. Now often hurt people will hurt other people. That's kind of what we do. But, but this is what equality looks like in the church. Now it doesn't mean these other issues aren't important and we'll talk about them in the next weeks as we step into it, but I want you to, this to me is first priority in terms of understanding equality. Because if we skip this, then we start using equality to hit every possible issue and I'm not convinced that's the way the scriptures and the spirit of God wants us to apply it. 
It doesn't mean we don't fix systemic problems. It doesn't mean we make changes when we understand biblical truth more clearly. But I think if we skip this step, we're in danger of swinging principles around like a dead cat and hitting whatever issue we want. What would prevent a person from the LGBTQ community to come in here and saying, I wanna be a pastor, I wanna be in leadership here and still wanna live my lifestyle? That's the principle they would pull from Galatians 3. How are we going to really answer those things? So the principle that comes out of, a, out of a section, a pericope of scripture, I believe is best applied when the context it was brought out of is also the context in which we apply it. But if, there's, if you don't care about all the principles and how we got there, let me ask you this. Are you living out this sense of equality with God in a way that reflects the power and the presence of Christ in us? Are we treating each other with love and kindness? Are we forgiving one another? Are we finding ways to reflect his presence in all that we do? Because if we're equal with God, we're equal with one another. The world desperately, desperately needs to see community that is different. It doesn't matter what your ethnic or your social economic status is. If a person's in Christ, we have this deep privilege and commitment to live that equality in a community that the world desperately needs to see. Father, these are tricky issues. And in the process of understanding it, I pray that we would, in a sense, move slowly. We need to think carefully about the, the things that we are saying and what it looks like. We need to keep allowing not just the cultural context, not just the linguistic, we need to understand the scriptural context in terms of issues like this and what it looks like. Father, this is a journey that I pray would stretch our thinking. I would ask that you will continue to make us students, ferocious students of the word of God to continue to investigate these things to explore the questions that come up in our hearts and engage them meaningfully and in, in discussion with an attempt to learn and grow. And I would ask that you will continue to help us be a body of Christ that reflects that we believe in equality and it begins with how we treat one another. That our lives and our community and the culture of this church is filled with love and kindness and compassion and forgiveness that we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, and I'm not a catalyst to tear that apart in people's lives, but I'm one who's committed to enhancing it. Father, help us when we sing to realize that we're encouraging and admonishing and teaching one another with the truth of God's word and our relationship to him and to one another, and it's absolutely unique in our world that we can build into one another's, and we have all equal responsibility to do that. So help us to worship and to sing with genuine and sincere hearts and not with bitterness or animosity or unforgiveness. Help us to reflect the power of your personal presence and our belief that you too change and transform us to be wholly different in a world that needs the hope of the gospel. And for this we pray, in Christ's name, amen.